This is a Federal News Network podcast. Veterans Affairs has never been a static organization. In recent years, legislation has added external practitioners to augment health care available in VA's own facilities. For a review of how this has gone so far and a look ahead to 2023, we turn to VA's Undersecretary for Health, Dr. Sharif Elnahal. Dr. Elnahal, good to have you on. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. And let's begin with external care provided, enabled under the Mission Act. Give us a sense of what the uptake has been so far. Do a lot of veterans use it, and how do you measure how it's going? Absolutely. So we have infrastructure across the country, Tom, to be able to serve veterans. We have brick and mortar facilities in every state, and we really do try to cover as much uh, of our veteran care need as possible within our system. But of course, we can't cover all of our veterans' needs. And in fact, the reliance of uh, veterans on care in uh, the community providers we partner with has increased over time. And so just to give you an idea of the volume, we've seen uh, 37 million community care outpatient appointments uh, over the last fiscal year, representing about a third of all outpatient appointments that veterans received. And we also spent over $27 billion on community care uh, last fiscal year. So we're certainly uh, using community care as veteran by veteran uh, needs arise. Uh, and that will certainly continue into the future. So it sounds, though, as if while VA would love to provide all of the health care to everyone, that's not really the veteran's choice. They seem to be eagerly after the external provider. Well, the Mission Act affords six possible pathways for veterans to get community care, uh, including whether or not we meet our access standards for uh, care within our direct care system, uh, whether clinicians determine that it's in the best medical interest of the veteran to get care uh, outside of the system for specific and complex conditions. For example, uh, if we don't have a full acute care hospital in any given state, any veteran in that state qualifies for community care. And there are a number of other pathways for veterans to get care. Uh, we are obligated to offer community care to veterans according to the Mission Act, and we do so uh, for every veteran who needs it. And what is the information channel that gets to the veterans so they know what their options are? So this is part of the daily work that we do in our clinical settings, Tom. Uh, If we think that a veteran needs a referral to specialty care, for example, in our clinics, uh, and we see that the veteran qualifies for the Mission Act, uh, we offer a veteran that option. Uh, Many times the veterans choose to stay within the system because uh, we have over 90% trust score in our care. And as I said, uh, our quality and patient safety within the direct care system actually exceeds that of the community in a lot of cases, according to studies. Nevertheless, uh, we do uh, offer care in the community when it's needed, and that is when we are in front of veterans in clinic, when veterans call our call centers seeking care, uh, and other opportunities. And that, that differential in quality, what are the measures of that? How do you go about ensuring at least that the community care providers are coming closer and closer to what VA's standard is. It's almost like company-owned stores versus franchises. We use a number of different standards to measure quality, including uh, data that is regularly uh, collected by CMS. And in fact, uh, the Mission Act calls for comparisons to uh, care in the community uh, for quality and performance for each region 
uh, where we serve veterans. And so that's an ongoing assessment to see whether we are falling behind in any given clinical specialty in any region. And thankfully, we haven't had to trip that wire because our care standards uh, are as high as they can be. And we're, of course, continuing to work on that. Uh, but of course, we are held accountable for our quality of care as we should be. Do you feel that perhaps affiliation with VA under that law and therefore being paid by VA has raised the quality for those providers because they become VA providers? I think it's certainly an impetus for us to make sure that we're meeting a certain standard. As I said, uh, we are proud to have quality and patient safety scores measured in various ways uh, exceed that of the community on average across the country. Uh, But of course, facility to facility, region to region, uh, there may be a better opportunity for a veteran to get care in the community. And if that is the case, we will offer a veteran that care. But my question is, do you think that community care is getting better by virtue of VAs paying for it and demanding things of it? Well, we do measure quality in various ways in our community care network. Uh, and uh, our community providers know that we do that. We have uh, third-party administrators that regularly collect that data, uh, and we examine it. And where we see issues, we certainly do reach out uh, through our third-party administrators and, in some cases, directly to those providers. And so I do hope that is an impetus for quality improvement for our community partners. We're speaking with Dr. Sharif Elnahal. He's Undersecretary of Health at the Veterans Affairs Department. You mentioned the idea of the best practice or the latest, most contemporary, most efficacious practice in different areas of medicine, and I imagine there's hundreds or thousands of them. How do you know that at a given moment, the best practice is not in VA, but out there somewhere that you can bring on board to the VA? How do you, how do you know well, often, what's best practice in a given domain? Well, oftentimes we rely on the judgment of our frontline uh, clinicians. Uh, They know the veteran the best in terms of their care needs. And if they determine that it's in the best medical interest of a veteran to get care with a a particular community provider, uh, they will indicate that and we will offer the veteran that appointment. But of course, we have different measures that we use more broadly to compare ourselves to the community. Uh, And when we trip that and if we trip that, that is a trigger to offer veterans care in the community for that specialty. Uh, until we improve. And so that is another accountability measure on us to make sure we're meeting a certain standard. But if some large hospital somewhere that has an expertise, and I'm just making this up, in a heart valve procedure or knee replacement procedure that becomes a breakthrough, wow, everybody in the medical community understands this is a breakthrough. It's published somewhere. You have a manner of bringing that into VA so VA can get that good also, is my question. We're constantly trying to make investments Uh, Tom, in care that we think veterans need on a population level. If we see uh, that a certain type of care is purchased in the community frequently, that is built into our efforts around infrastructure. And we do try to make investments and recruit uh, the providers needed to do that service. But of course, that's not always possible. Uh, And sometimes, uh, whether it's an academic medical center or a private sector institution, they simply have more expertise in a particular type of care or procedure. And in those cases, we do offer the veteran the soonest and best care option, even if it's in the community. In general, though, those best practices tend to migrate throughout the medical community eventually so that the baseline of care in a given area is higher than it was a generation earlier. That's right, and we're proud to have national experts in every domain of medicine 
uh, leading our specialty care offices that are nationwide in terms of their impact uh, and weighing in on clinical best practices uh, and innovations in different specialties. Uh, and so we are functioning as a system here to be able to make sure that care standards are optimized everywhere veterans may be getting care. What do they say about surgery? You see one, do one, teach one, correct? That's right. That's the old adage I heard since I was in medical training. Uh, but of course, we have a lot more rigorous uh, training. And in fact, we do train uh, the majority of physicians that go through residency uh, in the United States. We're a major part of the medical training uh, infrastructure. And that is advantageous to us because, of course, we want to hire as many of those new grads as possible, consistent with uh, this being our top priority in VA now. And let's talk about 2023. What are your general plans? I mean, it's a really big network that you oversee, uh, but what are your general goals for the coming year or two? And now that there's an appropriation, congratulations, the Congress came through for everybody. So I wake up and go to sleep thinking about how we have to prepare for the historic expansion of veterans benefits under the PACT Act. The president signed into law uh, this expansion of benefits, particularly for veterans who are exposed uh, to toxins across different periods of deployment, whether it's post 9-11 conflicts, the Gulf War, Vietnam, or otherwise. And now if you have a particular condition that is connected in the law to these exposures, you are presumed to have been exposed just by being deployed. And as long as you have that condition, you now qualify for service connection to get benefits in VA. And so what that means is we're gonna see not only an increased reliance on our care for veterans already enrolled in VA healthcare, uh, which will mean more demand from our existing base of veterans, but we will also see a new cohort of veterans and welcome them into the system as well. And so we are trying to build capacity in every single way possible. That includes hiring uh, 52,000 people a year to keep up with attrition and demand from the PACT Act, making sure that we expand our clinical space and our uh, brick and mortar footprint to be able to accommodate our clinical teams and overall making our clinics more efficient to be able to see more veterans per day and per scheduled time for clinicians. And so all of that is really what we're gearing up for in this next year. And as a medical man yourself, do you expect, say, that this burn pit treatment plan, as you say, it's going to take a lot of effort, a lot of money to carry out the PACT Act, is there new medical horizons? Is there new learnings from treating people with this particular affliction because it's so specialized, do you think? Absolutely. And in fact, the PACT Act calls for a uh, real investment in new research on the connection between different exposures and clinical conditions that are not yet considered presumptive. So we are uh, participating in an interagency working group right now to determine the most impactful studies that we can do. And when we generate enough evidence that a new clinical condition should be added and considered presumptive, or a new toxin entirely should be considered in terms of its health effects, we will examine that and make sure that we use our regulatory process to add that as a new condition and potentially a new exposure. And so the great thing about this law is that it affords us the opportunity to do that into the future. And regarding the brick and mortar question, which Unfortunately, VA just doesn't have the freedom of action that other medical systems have with respect to 
tearing down old hospitals that are functionally obsolete or serve a shrinking population, this kind of thing. As we learned in the whole back and forth now, you're back to ground zero in planning the infrastructure footprint. What's your sense, your sense, of the state of VA facilities as you look around? I mean, you know, you were trained in the most modern medical school there is, and you've been in some high-end places. VA has some old places, and buildings themselves cease to be functional medically at some point, don't they? That's right, Tom. And unfortunately, we have an average age of our hospitals that far exceeds the private sector, approaching 50 years old on average, especially when you consider uh, the hospitals in New England, the Northeast, uh, and also some of our older hospitals uh, built many, many years ago. We absolutely have to build new infrastructure in order to accommodate modern medicine and modern technology. Uh, but also to create more space, especially in areas with high veteran growth. I actually have a lot of experience with this. I used to run uh, a very old uh, safety net hospital in Newark, New Jersey. And every few months we had an infrastructure failure, whether it was a pipe that was bursting uh, that flooded some of our clinical areas uh, or otherwise that uh, forced us to close down those services for a period of time until we address them. Of course, that impacts access to care. So our infrastructure agenda is absolutely imperative for us to execute on so that we can keep up with the demand for care for veterans. My guest is Dr. Sharif Elnahal, Undersecretary of Health at the Veterans Affairs Department. Right. So in some sense, you might need a hospital in a given place, but you would have to replace in place almost. And that's sometimes more difficult than building new in a greenfield area and just tearing down because you get into all of those labor agreement issues and and the pushback from so many parties. Well, the good news is that the PACT Act actually uh, expedites 31 new leases across the country uh, for us to move faster uh, and create those spaces uh, sooner than we otherwise would have. And so I do view that as an important opportunity for us to move faster than we otherwise would have. Uh, But yes, uh, we have uh, issues with being able to expand uh, proximally in certain areas based on whether our facilities are landlocked, uh, and that has created some issues. And so we're trying to be uh, as innovative as possible about how we create more clinical space to serve veterans. And I always ask this of people that reach a certain managerial level in the career they have chosen. Do you ever walk the halls? Do you ever, say, put a stethoscope on a veteran yourself? Do you have that opportunity whatsoever? I have a chance to meet veterans all the time. When I travel uh, to medical centers, I meet clinicians and I meet the leadership teams uh, at our hospitals and clinics, but I also do try uh, to meet veterans and ask them how we're doing with their care. That's the most valuable type of feedback that I can get. Of course, we get data regularly on uh, surveys, questions that we ask veterans at a population level, but there's nothing like meeting the heroes that we serve and getting that feedback directly from them. And what are the first three numbers you look at every morning? Right now, I'm looking at our success uh, with the PACT Act. I'm looking at the toxic exposure screenings that we are doing. Uh, I'm looking at wait times for care and survey data uh, on how we're doing uh, with regard to veterans' satisfaction with timeliness of care. Uh, And I'm also looking at quality and patient safety data. If we are providing uh, good access and good quality, while at the same time executing on this historic legislation, then I know we're in a good place. And if you had a magic wand, what would you do about the electronic health care record situation? Well, I think we're starting to see some positive progress on that, Tom. Uh, Right now, we are focused, of course, on making the system 
work better for the clinicians and the employees using it at the five sites already in the system. And once we make substantial progress on that, I think we'll be able to proceed uh, to other facilities. So I actually wouldn't wish for anything now other than for us to execute on our plans. And I think we're well on our way to doing so. And you find the vendors generally responsive. I mean, since Oracle took over, has that been a big change, do you think? I think that relationship has improved since I, even I've been here uh, just this past July when I arrived. And I think the company is understanding that uh, you know, the system needs to improve. Uh, the episodes of downtime and lag time need to go away. And ultimately, the system needs to be configured in a way that's usable and intuitive for uh, the frontline clinicians using it. And I think we're making progress on those fronts. And just a final question. When you go to medical meetings and there are lots of big time administrators of hospital chains and so forth, Mass General and Kaiser and all of these, how do they seem to regard you now as the Undersecretary of Health at VA? I think most of my colleagues uh, running private sector healthcare systems appreciate the mission that we have, uh, and they know that they see many of the veterans we care for in their systems. And so it is a spirit of collaboration, uh, and it really has to be in order for us to execute on the full scope of care that veterans need. Dr. Sharif Elnahal is Undersecretary for Health at the Veterans Affairs Department. Thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics, I, um, one of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of of people with intellectual disabilities and and, and physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit, you know, they, they basically were in d- direct care. And, and I will say, and on a, obviously we'll say about my, my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but, uh, the, the men and women that do take care of people with uh, pr- profound disabilities are, are really, um, you know, we, we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're, they're really heroes. And, um, so I was, I was drawn when I, I, and I just saw that, you know, Special Olympics was looking for someone and I thought, well, you know, take a look at it and see, see, you know, throw, uh, send in my information and lo and behold, I, I, I get hired and, um, I learn, uh, every day, almost something from, especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington, DC. And, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries. Uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused. 
has a has a good story like it can just turn a day around for you and 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 you think of i i you know so often when he'll walk away i'll be like you know whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know stressing me out and come on, you know, like, look at, look at Terrell, like he, he, he faces everything with optimism. And, and, and I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally, you see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the state or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of watch, watch your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from from their last competition, and they're so committed, and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs and 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 I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from a- the athletes of Special Olympics that. Uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more. Uh, we get more than we give uh, working with Special Olympics. It, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do. But but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so. Uh, joyful and and uh, i mean we work hard and you know we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day but uh man you see it, it and 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 the inclusion and the at special olympics no one's excluded you know no, right. no one's excluded everyone yeah. is equal at special olympics it, and you know in a country that's quite divided on so many lines politically and uh, socially uh, economically race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot, but you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved, everyone's welcome, everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics and experienced the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that won't help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials. Uh, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier. Um, where people and, and it doesn't have to be uh, it's not just school age it's it's uh you know we say nine to 99 or uh year old uh folks uh that play on teams uh bowl together golf together play soccer basketball together uh people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together um and that is i i think when you when you go back to the founding uh, of our organization and what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to 
uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out at, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website. Uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.